Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. But of those who fight on the side of the Lamb, of those who compose his last legion, this text, my text tonight says, they are called and chosen and faithful. Called and chosen and faithful. And somehow, my dear friends, there is growing in my soul a great yearning to have done with the type of education which is concerned with preparing people to live in this world and settle down and feather their nests and keep on that long, long cycle that has been going on in this world so long, one generation after the other. My soul is longing to see some people prepared, a Gideon's band, who will feel that the one thing in life is to do the job for which we've been born, do the work to which we've been called, on with the battle and get it over. There'll be eternity for a good many things, but eternity can never dawn till time is finished. Peace can never come till the war is over. These, that is, the powers of earth, shall make war with the Lamb. And the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. That's why the Lamb is going to win. Two reasons. He's Lord of all. And friends, he's always been Lord of all. But the second reason is they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. You remember the beautiful picture of those that are with him. 14th chapter in the first verse. I looked and lo, Lamb stood on the Mount Zion and with him and hundred forty and four thousand having his father's name written in their foreheads. To develop that 144,000 group, and I'm not concerned with the numbering, friends. There's some people that feel that's far too few. I'm willing for it to be, friends, just as many as can be gotten in. I'm not concerned with cutting anybody off or crowding anybody out. But every time I begin to study and meditate on what it takes to be in that number, I wonder in my soul how God is going to find 144,000 individuals like that. I marvel at it. We're told that we're to strive with all our powers to be among the 144,000. I propose we do it, friends. What do you say? I propose we do it. Strive with all our powers to be among the 144,000. Why do you want to be among the 144,000? Well, there might be various reasons. But to my mind, dear friends, the great reason is that we may have the privilege of sharing with Jesus in the last great battle over the character of God and help to vindicate that character and to bring joy to the heart of our Redeemer as the shout of triumph rings through the universe and the banner of triumph is planted on the eternal heights. It's got to cost something. 
quite a number of you here tonight are young people. I'd like to speak especially to our young people tonight. You dear young men and women who have no encumbrances. No encumbrances. You know, for decades now, God has been looking with anxious heart as one generation after another has come to that point in their teens and twenties where life lies ahead and where they make the choice as to what they will do. And do you know what most everybody does? They proceed to encumber themselves with all manner of problems and burdens and difficulties so that they can do very, very little for Jesus. There isn't an army in this world, my friends, that could fight a war and win it with the amount of time and the amount of service and the amount of attention undivided that most people today who claim to be candidates for this last legion are giving to the cause of Jesus Christ. I'd like to repeat that for you. I say there isn't an army anywhere in this world that could fight a war and win it with the amount of attention, undivided, that most people are giving to the cause of Jesus Christ today. We have to have this and we have to have that. Boy, well, that's expected. That's a part of life. We must do this and we must do that. And if we can do a little missionary work on the side, well, that's fine. But the great thing is to live life. To do this thing and that thing that's the expected thing in life. Someday, my friends, somebody... Several somebodies, only a few but enough, are going to get the vision of having done with many of these commonplace things. And giving their lives to one thing, the finishing of the work of God. And it could all have been done, my friends. It could all have been done 80 years and more ago. God could have found some young people who would get that vision in their youth and refuse to be burdened and bound down with many of the encumbrances and responsibilities that people take upon themselves which keep them from doing the one thing that God has called for in the finishing of his work. Somebody's going to get that vision. Oh, I trust I trust that somebody here tonight will get it. And I want to assure you, my dear friends, it's amazing what even one young person that gets this vision can do. Do you remember the story over in the 20th of Deuteronomy, or rather the instruction that bears upon the story which we shall refer to later, the Judges? This twentieth of Deuteronomy is the instruction of the Lord to Moses, telling him what to have the children of Israel do whenever there was a war to be fought. 
It was written down here so that uh, you and I today could have the benefit of it. Deuteronomy 20, verse 5. Third verse says that the priest should tell the people that they didn't need to faint, that God was going to be with them. The fourth verse, God will fight for you against your enemies to save you. Then the officers, the fifth verse, were to speak to the people. They were to say, is there any man here that's come out here to fight in this battle that's built a new house? But he hasn't dedicated yet. Hasn't dedicated it yet. Well, he can go. He doesn't need to go to the battle. He's excused. He can go back. And somehow as I see the trumpet put to the lips, and as I hear that call sounded out over the army, I see a man here and a man there, but there's a smile that comes across his face. And he says, that's me. I'm so glad I won't have to go. And so he gathers up his few belongings and he hustles home. He comes in, he breaks the news to all his loved ones. He says, isn't it wonderful I don't have to go? Excuse me. How's that? Well, I've got this house, this new house to look after. Well, they let me. Well, isn't that fine? Isn't it lucky you built that house? Very lucky. But that wasn't all. They were to say further, what man is he that hath planted a vineyard and hath not yet eaten of it? Let him also go and return unto his house, lest he die in the battle and another man eat of it. Did you ever hear of any nation under heaven except Israel that had any such law as this, friend? Isn't that a strange thing? Amazing. Gather everybody to the battle, but before they go, stop everybody and say, are there, is there anybody here that's planted a vineyard and you haven't eaten of it yet? Well, yes. This man says, I have. I planted a vineyard two years ago. Crops coming on this year, a little, but I haven't eaten of it yet. Well, that's all right, then you're excused. Going to really let me go on that account? That's fine. I'm sure glad I planted that vineyard. And what man is there that hath betrothed a wife and hath not taken her? Let him go and return unto his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man take her. Why, yes, they look out over that great sea of heads. Any of you fellows here that are getting ready to be married? Why, yes, here's the number. That's all right. You're excused. You don't have to go. don't have to go. And I suppose that there were some who envied those men who were excused. Those that had just built a new house. Or those that had just planted a vineyard. Or those that were about to marry a wife. And then when they got all through with that, they said, now besides all these we've let go, there may be some others here that we ought to let go. Is there anybody here that's fearful and faint-hearted? Most anybody could qualify on that, couldn't they? (laughs) If you were going against an enemy that had spears and swords and chariots of iron and great horses, and walls of stone, thick 
I suppose most anybody could get out on that count without lying. Say yes. Yes. I sure do feel rather afraid. My heart is just beating a little faster this morning. Officer says, all right, you may be excused. What a strange way to fight a war. That's God's way. That's God's way. And do you know what it all sums up to? If you've got anything else to do, go do it. If there's anything else you want to do, go do it. But if there's anybody here that sin is supremely interested in the battles of the Lord, and there's nothing else in heaven or earth that matters except to win the victory for Jesus Christ, let him remain. And it shall be when the officers have made an end of speaking unto the people that they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people. And I want to tell you, friends, the captains are not all made yet. For this sifting has not taken place. It's not yet apparent. Who shall fight in Christ's last legion? We have not yet gone through this shaking and sifting, which shall test the hearts of men, how will you stand? Will you have so many interests, so many matters to look after, that as the opportunity to be excused is given, you will find yourself excused? Or will you be able to face this examination one test after the other and say, there is just one thing that I'm interested in, that's to win this fight for God. Nothing, nothing, nothing shall come between me and that blessed goal. Shall we look upon then the ordinary responsibilities that men are loading themselves down with as blessings? or his liabilities. Think it through, my friend. Think it through. Now turning over here to the book of Judges. I find here that wonderful story of Gideon, that young man, that the Lord called to deliver Israel. Judges 6, 7. The angel came and said, Gideon, God's chosen you to deliver his people. Oh, he said, I'm just a poor young fellow. I can't do anything. The Lord said, yes, you can. You're a mighty man of valor. The Lord is with you. God's going to be with you. Blow the trumpet and gather the people. Turn on the altar of Baal. Get busy. I'll give you the victory. Well, you remember his questionings and his getting the signs and all that. But finally, he got the people together, and uh, he had 32,000 men. Seventh chapter of Judges. The Lord says, too many get in. You know what Gideon had done? You know what he hadn't done? He hadn't done what the 20th chapter of Judges said. I mean 20th chapter of Deuteronomy. Gideon knew about this, but you know why he didn't do it? He had so few he didn't dare sit them. That was a mistake. I hope you'll remember that, friends, as we go into the last battle. It doesn't make any difference how few we are. The captain is going to sit them. So, 
Be careful that you do not think because there are so few that that means for sure you get in. No. Even though there are very few, still, you might be sifted out. You will be sifted out, unless your first business, your great business, your only business, is to win this fight for God. Give your life for God's program. You know, the Lord said to get in too many. He says, you blow the trumpet and tell the people that anybody that's fearful and faint-hearted go home. Well, you know what happened. 22,000 went home, 10,000 stayed. That was a little more than two-thirds that did what? Went home. Went home. They had other things to look at. They were a bit fearful the enterprise wouldn't succeed anyway. My dear friends, this movement is going to meet the same test. Those who go through with this movement will have faith to go right ahead when every appearance to the human eye is discouraging. Their faith is in God. But now comes the most marvelous thing. With the movement of city, with 22,000 out of the way, gone home because they were fearful and faint-hearted, only 10,000 left against tens and hundreds of thousands of the enemy. The Lord says to get it, still too many. Why, he said, if I'd, if I'd let them fight now and let them have the victory, they'd be telling everybody what wonderful soldiers they were. They'd take the glory to themselves. No, he said, we'll have to sift them again. Now he says, you take them down to the water. And take them through the water. And he says, the ones that drink in a certain way you put over here, and the ones that drink in another way you put over here. And when they got through, friends, there were 9,700 here, and there were 300 here. The Lord says, you tell those 9,700 to take what they have and go home. And I'm going to use those 300 right there. You know the difference? You remember the story, don't you? Those 9,700 wanted to fight. They weren't afraid. They had faith in God. But there was something in them, my dear friends, that was greatly interested in making things as easy and as pleasant for themselves as they went along as possible. That's right. showed itself in a very little thing, just how they got a drink. You know what those 9,700 did? They got on there and they just took their time and they got on where it was easy and just took that water and just had a good time. You know what the 300 did? With their eye on the enemy and on their leader to get the orders, they marched right through that water and took a little water in their hands as they went through and lapped it up. These men were interested in themselves, their comfort. And my friends, may I tell you, it wasn't whiskey they were drinking either, nor beer. It's just water, good water. But there were 300 that had already settled it, my dear friends, that they were there for just one thing, and that was to win that battle for God. They did. You remember the wonderful story. They won it. Oh, I want to be one of those, don't you? Did you see the different tests they were put through? For over 25 years now, friends, I have watched young people come up to the point that I am talking about tonight, and hardly any of them, hardly any of them, ever carry through with making a complete 
an unreserved devotion to the work. Well, I'm not talking about the people that go out to the work and give up the message. I'm talking about the people who remain members of the church and do a certain amount. But they're so busy with all the jobs they've set for themselves and all the chores they've taken on and all the responsibilities that they've multiplied. They have precious little time and strength left to fight Christ's last battle. Because this is an all-out battle. It'll take all they have. Let's remember Gideon's 300. Here's a little statement that I read in the testimony that Sister White gave Oakland, California, August 1, 1891. All who venture to have their own way who do not join the angels who are sent from heaven with a message to fill the whole earth with its glory will be passed by. The work will go forward to victory without them and they will have no part in its triumph. Who? All who venture to have their own way. It's amazing to me, my dear friends, how many people bring right into an attempt to work for God, the spirit to have their own way. They're willing to work for God provided they can choose the program that they wish, do it in the way they want to, work when they want to, under whom they wish, as long as they wish, stop when they wish, do what they wish. And all who want to do it that way, have their own way, will be left out, and the work will go on to triumph without them. Solemn thought, isn't it, friend? Solemn thought. Very solemn thought. You remember the story that Jesus told? As he was sitting at the dinner table this is the 14th of Luke as he sat there he was giving them a lesson but there was one man who in a very pious way said blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God and then Jesus to show him how few people would ever get there he said there was a man that made a great supper and he invited many but when the time came he sent his servant to call them in and they all, with one consent, began to make what? Excuse. Luke 14, 18. The first said what? I bought a piece of ground. I have to go see it. Please have me excused. What could the servant say? Couldn't say anything. The man was going. He was going. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I go to prove them. Please have me excused. Well, nothing the servant could do. That man was excused. The third said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. You all had excuses. Do you notice that there wasn't one, then, one there that said, well, I'm sorry, I'm going to the nightclub tonight, so I won't be there? There wasn't one that said, I'm going down to play pool this evening, and so please excuse me. There wasn't one there that said, well, I'm going down to the lodge. I like to be down there with the fellows. They all had what ordinary living today would consider a very fine excuse. There are even some members of the Church of Jesus Christ who would say, why, sure, that's all right. You have to look after your business. You have to look after your wife. Sure, that comes first. There's a devilish idea today, my dear friends. That you must look after everything that your family wants first. 
then if you have some time and thought left, give that to the work of God. I read something the other day that didn't sound like that at all. Would you like to hear it? You'll find it in volume 3, page 500. Never should the cause of God be left to suffer in a single particular because of our earthly friends or dearest relatives. No earthly ties, no earthly considerations should weigh one minute in the scale against duty to the cause and work of God. Jesus severed his connection from everything to save a lost world, and he requires of us a full and entire consecration. There are sacrifices to be made for the interests of God's cause. Be careful how you appeal to your sympathies. Let human feelings personal considerations mingle with your efforts and labors for the cause of God. He demands unselfish and willing service. You can render this and yet do all your duties to your family, but hold this as a secondary matter. Duties to your family are what? Secondary. A secondary matter. Do you believe that? A lot of people don't believe that at all. Oh, no. For the sanctimonious, pious front, they say, my family comes first. And it surely does. It surely does. It comes first. And turn, please, to the ninth chapter of Luke. 57th verse. It came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell which are at home in my house. Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Do you see why that Jesus had so many hearers and so few followers? Do you see why? He was continually doing wonderful things that drew the people to him and then spoiling it all by saying hard, cutting things like this that chased people away. They said, My might be dangerous to get too close to that man. He just upset all our human planning and all our activities. And he woke. So he had many hearers, but few followers. Many are called, but few chosen. Fourteenth of Luke. Twenty-fifth verse. There went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 33rd verse, likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. You going to fight in Christ's last legion, brother? means everything. means everything. And may I urge you in Jesus' name, do not look around you and see what some other good brother or sister is doing and conclude that if they can do it, you can too. In the first place, maybe they can, maybe they can't. 
In the second place, even if they can, maybe you can't. God is looking for somebody that's interested in just one thing, and that's to finish this battle and go home. But there are thousands of good people that want to settle down in this world and live their life in this world. And some of them, God knows, they hope Jesus doesn't come too soon. They'd be glad to have him come when they get gray hairs or white hairs, but they'd hate to have him come right now because it would spoil some very important plans they have. But I want to tell you, friends, whenever Jesus comes, there will be some generation that will meet him young. There will be some generation meet him with unfinished plans, unfulfilled dreams as far as human life is concerned. And the real spirit of this movement, from the days of James and Ellen White and J. and Andrews to the present, the real spirit of this movement, which few have ever fully grasped, but all must grasp it before the battle comes, the real spirit of this movement, friends, is to give the life to the one thing, and that's the finishing of the work. That one thing. Finishing of the work. You know, marriage keeps a lot of people from this work, friends. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking against marriage. But I say marriage keeps a lot of people from this work. I'll read that to you. This is series B of the testimonies, page 16 and 17. Many of the marriages contracted in these last days proved to be a mistake. The parties make no advancement in spiritual faith. Their growth and usefulness ended with their marriage. There are men and women throughout the country who would have been accepted as laborers together with God if Satan had not laid his snares to entangle their minds and hearts in courtship and marriage. Did the Lord urge them to obtain the advantages of our schools and missions that they might sink everything in courtship and marriage, binding themselves by a human band for a lifetime? By accepting the work of rearing children in these last days of uncertainty and peril, many place themselves in a position where they cannot labor, either in the canvassing field or in any other branch of the cause of God, and some lose all interest to do it. It is no use to spend time and money in the education of workers who will fall in love before they complete this education and who cannot resist the first temptation in the form of an invitation to marriage. In most cases, the labor spent on such persons is wholly lost. When they enter the marriage relation, their usefulness in the work of God is at an end. They increase their family, they are dwarfed and crippled in every way, and cannot use the knowledge they have obtained. I didn't write any of that, and I've read it straight through without any comment. It doesn't need any comment. And if you just half open one of your eyes with the other clear closed, and look around you, friends. You'll see hundreds of people just going through the fulfillment of this. Year after year and decade after decade. Hardly anybody is all out to fight this battle and finish the work of God. And this doesn't mean, my friends, that there should be no marriages or no children. It doesn't mean either one of these things. But it does mean that God is looking for some people to whom the one thing important is the finishing of the work and who 
having made that choice and settled that faith, will take on no responsibilities, except no burdens, except those that the captain gives them as a part of finishing the work. Same page says, those who are controlled by a sense of duty, who daily seek wisdom and help from God, will act intelligently, not from selfish motives, but from the love of Christ and the truth. Such will not hesitate to give themselves unreservedly, soul, body, and spirit to the work. They will study work and pray for its advancement. I repeat, do not enter into a marriage engagement unless there are good and sufficient reasons for this step, unless the work of God can be better advanced thereby. See, that's the one reason to a soldier in Christ's last legion. Just one. It's one good reason. What will finish the work, in fact? For Christ's sake, deny inclination, lift the cross, and do the work for which you are educating yourself. As important as that is, my friends, if that were the only thing that were holding things back, we'd be miles farther up the road. But oh, there are so many things. Well, do you know today there are many people who want to start out in life where their parents left off? They must have an automobile. They must have a radio, television. They must have sterling silver and $500 worth of furniture in the living room, a $200 bedroom suite, and all the rest before they can do anything. Well, I'm afraid, my dear friends, it's because we see more realistically the things that we see with these eyes than the things we see with the eye of faith through the lens of prophecy. Oh, I trust I'm talking to men and women and youth tonight that will believe God and that will rejoice to put everything on the altar and say, Lord, we're not interested in settling down in this whole world and preparing to live out our days in this place. No, no. Our home is yonder in the New Jerusalem. God is building us a mansion. We are fighting for him. We're fighting for him. Now, it's true the Lord has told us that if we make that choice, the Lord will see that we're taken care of sufficiently here. But do you know, my friend, it's wonderful what a lot of time we save when we let God take care of us instead of taking care of ourselves on many of these things. That's a fact. If we have to take care of ourselves, it's going to take about all our time and then we won't get it done. But if we plunge as Gideon's 300 did, and have done with all these selfish wishes and preferences. We'll win the battle, and it'll be amazing what a wonderful good time we have while we're doing it. It won't be any mourning, lamenting, groaning band that plant the banner on the heights of victory. No, sir. Truth of the matter is, friends, this is real happiness. That's the paradox of the thing. But if you accept it just to be happy, you'll probably be disappointed. You'll only bite into it far enough to get the hard shell, and you'll say, I'm afraid this wasn't for me. Sit down and count the cost, Jesus says, whether you have sufficient to finish it. I think again and again of that experience when Jesus was trying to teach the disciples this lesson, 16th of Matthew. He drew out from them the acknowledgement that he was Christ, the Son of God, and then he told them, he said, now we're going up to Jerusalem, 
We're going up to a battle. And this battle that I've outlined on the blackboard, my friends, is like that battle that Jesus and his disciples went up to at Jerusalem. A battle in which we use no carnal weapons, but in which, like Jesus, we suffer at the hands of wicked men. A battle in which unseen devils unite with visible devils in human flesh. It's going to mean something to be able to do as Jesus did, to be calm and patient and loving and devoted, to be able to go through Gethsemane and on to Calvary. Jesus was trying to teach the disciples that lesson. And so he told them about what was ahead, 21st verse, how he'd be spit upon and scourged and killed. And then you know what Peter said? Peter took him and he says, Oh, no, Lord. That won't happen to you. Pity yourself, Lord. That mustn't be. Be it far from thee, Lord. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan. You know what it was that Peter didn't want to see in the work of God? The cross. That's what people don't want to see today. Peter wanted to get this world and the next two. He wanted to go ahead and live a normal life and still have what was ahead with Jesus. And then Jesus said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. That's the paradox, friend. Those that are with Jesus, called, chosen, and faithful, will lose their lives as far as this world is concerned. They won't be written in the who's who of America, but their names will be writ large in the ledger of heaven. Just a few weeks after this experience with his disciples, Jesus went to Jerusalem, and just as he told them, he met death upon the cross. He died at the early age of 33, and most men would have said he threw his life away. I want to tell you something, friends. He had given everything. And he didn't leave anything for men to quarrel over, except those few articles of clothing that they took from his back when they nailed him to the cross. That's all. That's all. Men would have said he made a very poor living. They even had to borrow a tomb to put him in. Oh, my. That hurt some people awfully to be dying and not know where they were going to be buried, wouldn't it? Terrible. Terrible. But he'd given everything. Everything. It was all in the work. And he had to look around for someone to take care of his mother. He should have had a life insurance policy to take care of that, shouldn't he? He did, friends. He turned to John, his best friend, and said, John, you look after him. John said he would. Oh, I say that judged by the standards of men, the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus meant a supreme failure. But he won the greatest battle of all time there at Calvary. Satan was defeated. And this battle we're going into is of that kind, my friend. That's the thing I want us to see. It isn't a battle that's going to be fought with the sound of fife and drum and the blare of trumpet, with the martial step of marching men under the inspiration of the band's music and the charge of legions. No, no. This battle is going to be fought as the battle of Gethsemane was fought and the battle of Calvary was fought. 
and the men who fight on the winning side are going to be written off the records of this world as supreme failures. But in losing their lives, they're going to win them. In giving their lives, they're going to receive them. And all this Jesus has shown us in his life and death. May I share with you some beautiful little verses contrasting our blessed Lord and Alexander the Great. You know the story of Alexander. How in his youth, the martial atmosphere around him inspired in him the great ambition to become the ruler of the world. And he marched his armies across the Hellespont, down into Asia Minor, down into Egypt, over into Babylon, all around, everywhere, gaining victory after victory, and finally, in a great celebration at Babylon, falling down dead drunk in a debauch, dying in a fever shortly after. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One lived and died for self. One died for you and me. The Greek died on a throne. The Jew died on a cross. One's life a triumph seemed, the other but a loss. One led vast armies forth. The other walked alone. One shed a whole world's blood. The other gave his own. One won the world in life and lost it all in death. The other lost his life to win the whole world's fate. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. The Greek made all men slaves. The Jew made all men free. One built a throne on blood. The other built on love. The one was born of earth. The other from above. The one won all this earth to lose all earth and heaven. The other gave up all that all to him be given. The Greek forever died. The Jew forever lives. He loses all who gets. He wins all things who give. How much will you give? How much will you give? You remember how 200 years and more ago, over there in a little town in Germany, a nobleman was traveling through the country, and he came to a place where there was a painting of Jesus on the cross. He went into this place where the painting was, and he lingered there. He'd heard about this picture. He'd come to see it. He stayed there hour after hour until the tears came down his face and the time finally came that the keeper came and touched him on the shoulder and told him it was time to lock up. There were two little lines underneath that great painting. With the scene of Jesus giving his life on the cross, the message there had gone to his heart. All this I did for thee. What hast thou done for me? And from that experience, Count Zinzendorf went forth to lead what has been called the Moravian Movement, sending missionaries to all parts of the world. It was from those who had gotten the inspiration from that man that Wesley got his inspiration, the justification by faith. And oh, think of the millions whose lives have been touched by that. Brethren and sisters, there's just one thing that you and I need tonight. 
and that is a sense of what it means to be unreservedly given to Jesus to finish his work, to finish his work. May I say if there's anything that I have presented, have read, or have said tonight which you don't understand, please be sure you take hold of what you do understand. If you take hold of what you do understand, it will lead you quickly to the things you don't understand, and you'll understand them when you get to them. No question about that. Shall we bow our heads? Shall we in silence commune with our hearts and ask Jesus what he wants us to do? Now I've asked brother and sister to bring the message in song. And as they sing, I'd just like to have you be thinking of what this is going to mean in your life. Are you going to answer the call of Jesus? How much? 10%, 50%, 90%, or 100%? tidings that there's one more that has enlisted for the duration of the war. Not to give a few weeks or a few months service, but to be all out as long as time and life shall last to fight this battle and finish this war. You know, it's only going to be a little while that we're going to gather up there with Jesus on the sea of glass and sing the glad shout and sing the glad song of victory, that victory over the beast and his image and his mark and the number of his name. And go with Jesus on that triumphal tour through the universe. Our friends, it'll be glory. But the most glorious thing in the world is going to be to look into the face of Jesus and see how glad he is that we loved him enough to do it. And he can give us that love. Well, there's a call here for every heart tonight. As I said, I especially want to appeal to every young person. Make up your mind, my dear friend. You are unburdened without the responsibilities that weigh down and leave you with little margin to devote to God. Think it through. What are you going to do with your life? Have a career? Carve out for yourself a place in this world or be in Christ's last teaching in Gideon's band to break the pictures and let the light shine and the trumpets blow and win the victory for God. Oh, what a wonderful hour and a wonderful opportunity. You know, I just feel, friends, if there were ten young people here tonight that would fully get hold of the thing I've been studying with you, it's amazing how soon things would be on fire. That's right. It's amazing. There's such a thing as a kindling temperature. You can take paper here and you can heat it. And you can get so hot that when you put your hand on it, you say, that's hot. It's just hot paper. 
But you get that paper so hot, and you know what'll happen? It bursts into flames. That's what God is looking for. And I want to tell you something, friends. Ten young people that get really to the kindling temperature on the thing I'm studying about tonight are going to accomplish more than 10,000 that merely get warm. That's right. And I'm so sorry that so many people today seem to have a great burden to keep anything from getting too hot. God help us, friends. We're going ahead, aren't we? Amen. Now, while I've made a special appeal to young people, I want you to know, friends, there's something here for every soul. That's the beauty of God's call. Something you can do. You may not have certain things that young people have, but you may have some, some things they don't have. You may have some experience to put on God's altar. You may have some money to put on God's altar. You may have some talents to put on God's altar. You may have some lessons learned through trial and sorrow and disappointment to put on God's altar. Whatever you have, brother, sister, friend, put it on God's altar. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.